0: Hello dear listeners, whether you're just finding us or have been with us for a while, welcome at Dreams and Crimes. We've got a treasure trove of stories waiting to be discovered. We like to describe them as a cozy blanket after a long day of work or a ticket to a thrilling adventure before bed. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with us. Your support means the world. Want to take it up a notch? Consider subscribing to Dreams and Crimes on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. We're cooking up something special, turning these stories into videos. We've put a lot of efforts into them, and they're actually super good. And now, let's dive into today's story. The Girl in the Box In 1977, hitchhiking in the U.S. was a common mode of transportation, even for young girls. Colleen Stan was a free-spirited, 20-year-old girl hitchhiking her way from Eugene, Oregon to the small northern California town of Westwood to surprise a friend for her birthday. After accepting rides with truckers down Interstate 5, she made her way to Red Bluff, California where she needed to change onto Highway 36. While waiting for a ride at the on-ramp to Highway 36, she turned down a few rides. They just looked like they could be trouble. Finally, a couple stopped to offer her a ride, Cameron and Janice Hooker. Just looking at them, they seemed to be a safe enough couple. Cameron looked a bit nerdy with his big 70s-style eyeglasses, and Janice was holding a two-month-old baby in her arms, so Colleen accepted their ride. During the ride, there was almost no conversation at all. Cameron just kept glancing at her in the rearview mirror, which made Colleen a bit uneasy. When they stopped at a gas station, Colleen took the opportunity to use the restroom. Something inside her felt that she should find another ride, but she was so close to her destination, she decided to just continue riding with the couple. A bit further down the road, Cameron asked if it was okay if they made a stop to see some ice caves just off the main highway and Colleen said she didn't mind. She wasn't in a hurry. They drove down a dirt road for a while, then stopped, and the couple walked down to a creek while Colleen stayed in the car. She had lost sight of the couple when suddenly Cameron jumped into the back seat of the car with her. He grabbed her, handcuffed her wrists, blindfolded her, shoved a gag into her mouth, and forced her head into a large wooden box. The wooden box was a homemade bondage device called a sensory deprivation head box. It was large and heavy with two sides to it that were hinged together at the top like a clamshell and a hole at the bottom just big enough for her neck to fit through. The inside of the box was coated with carpet to muffle her screams. Colleen was lying helpless in the back seat. When the car finally stopped, Cameron removed the box from her head led her into a house and into the basement. He removed her clothes and blindfolded her. Forcing Colleen to stand on a metal ice chest, Cameron bound her wrist with leather restraints connected to hooks on a ceiling beam. Then he pulled out the ice chest from beneath her, leaving her suspended from the ceiling by her wrists. He began whipping her back with a leather whip while she dangled, kicking and screaming. As Cameron was whipping her through a gap in her blindfold, Colleen could see a magazine with a photo of a woman strapped up like she was. He was acting out his fantasy from a BDSM, Bondage, Discipline, Domination, Submission, Sadism, Masochism, magazine. He then let her rest her toes on a box while Cameron and Janice had sex while looking at her. When Colleen screamed out, Cameron would yell at her, Go ahead and scream. I'll cut your vocal cords out. I've done it before. She believed him, and it may have actually been true. The year prior, a young girl in the area named Marie Spanaki went missing. Janice later revealed that the couple had kidnapped her as well. Cameron couldn't control himself, though, and killed her after only one day in captivity. Colleen's torture went on for hours until he finally let her sit naked on the ice chest. Cameron then put the wooden sensory deprivation box back on her head, laid her in a larger wooden box about the size of a coffin, chained her wrists together, and tied her feet to the corners of the box. Cameron Hooker had been busy building homemade bondage devices preparing for his victim, and the following day he put Colleen on another one he called the rack. He chained her wrists and ankles to the corners of the rack and left her there until the next day. On the third day, Cameron tried to feed Colleen, but she couldn't keep any food down. This only angered him, so he hung her by her wrists and whipped her more, and when he was finished, he attached her to the rack again. Later that week, Colleen's roommates were getting worried when they heard she hadn't showed up at her friend's house. They called her family in Riverside, California, and the family began searching for her. They drove from Riverside, California, 900 miles north, to Eugene, stopping at every town along the way to report Colleen as missing. Sadly, they found no clues and returned to Riverside. Colleen was kept naked, chained to the rack, and wearing the head box for the entire first week. Over the next five months, Cameron kept Colleen naked in the box in the basement. She was gagged, blindfolded, bound, and still wearing the head box. She was let out once every evening to urinate, defecate, eat, and drink, always with Cameron watching. During these first several months, he would take her out of the box for his sadistic pleasures. He would whip her choke her, shock her, burn her genitals with a heat lamp, and hold her head underwater in the bathtub to the edge of drowning. Colleen recalled that Cameron Hooker hung and whipped her at least 90 times during these first six months, but he was just getting started. In October 1977, Cameron built another box to hold his slave. This was a triangle shape that fit neatly beneath the stairs he called the workshop. Colleen would spend the next six months chained and locked inside the workshop. She was only let out during this time for his bondage pleasures and to do chores around the house. Cameron built another device he called the stretcher, in which Colleen's arms and legs were pulled taut and stretched. Over time, this device caused permanent damage to her back and shoulder. Cameron Hooker's mental manipulation of Colleen really took effect when he told her of an underground organization of slave owners called The Company. According to Hooker, The Company was a powerful organization that watched all of her movements very closely. Their members were everywhere— Any slaves that were caught trying to escape were taken from their current masters and sold to other masters that could be much worse than what he was doing to her. She believed his story, but it was actually a work of fiction that he read about in one of his bondage porn magazines. Over the subsequent years, he expanded on the company's story, making her more and more frightened of them. When his wife Janice had knee surgery and came home with a bandage on her knee, Cameron explained to Colleen that Janice had once been a slave who had tried to escape. He said they tortured her for trying to escape and damaged her legs. The truth was that Janice was never a slave. She was Cameron's wife, but she had certainly endured his sexual sadism, but not to the extreme that Colleen was currently experiencing. Janice, however, couldn't take any more of it. She wanted to have a baby, so she made an agreement with her husband. She could have a baby, and he could have his sexual slave under one condition. He was not to have sex with his slave. Sex was reserved for his wife exclusively. Colleen's enslavement would go through different stages, and in January 1978, a new stage was about to begin. This stage involved a contract. Cameron produced a slave contract to Colleen. This contract was an official document stating she was a slave and that he owned her soul. Again, it was actually something he'd seen in a bondage magazine. Colleen refused to sign it, but Cameron complained that a representative of the company was waiting for the signed contract. Once the contract was signed, from this point on, Colleen's name was changed to her slave name, K and she was to address Hooker as Sir or Master, and she was to call Janice Ma'am. The contract also required her to bow, kneel, and ask permission before doing anything at all. A leather collar with a steel ring was placed around her neck to be worn at all times, so she would never forget she was a slave. He also pierced her labia, another symbol of her slavery. Though Cameron had an agreement with Janice that he wouldn't have sex with his slave, it was actually Janice that first suggested he have sex with her. She thought it might excite her if she watched him raping her. It didn't. It only sparked her jealousy. It was also the start of many more rapes to come. Internally, Colleen retreated to the confines of her mind. She learned that she could do anything and be anywhere in her mind. That was the only way she could cope. Colleen cried every day, but never let Cameron see her crying because she knew it would anger him. In April 1978, the hookers moved from their small house into a mobile home on an acre of land nearby. This began the third stage of Colleen's enslavement. In the new home, Cameron built a new box for Colleen that would double as the pedestal that their waterbed would rest on. Colleen lived in a small box just beneath where they slept and had sex. He only allowed her to have a bedpan, some toilet paper, and a radio in her new box. She spent the majority of every day and night in confinement beneath the bed, to be let out only once per day late at night. In September 1978, Janice gave birth to their second child. She gave birth on the waterbed while Colleen was locked in the box below. The following year, Janice got a night job, and Cameron worked days. In Janice's absence, Colleen was let out in the evenings to do chores and make dinner for her master. By June 1980, Cameron knew that the fear of the company was enough to keep Colleen in line, and when Janice got a daytime job, They allowed Colleen to babysit the two children by herself. This started yet another stage. Out of fear that the company was always watching, she didn't run. She believed that if she was caught, she would be tracked down, tortured, or possibly even killed. Cameron also told her that they would kill her family as well. During this stage of her enslavement, Colleen was allowed to sleep in the back bathroom, chained to the toilet. The two children had no idea that Colleen even lived in the same house. By February 1981, Cameron wanted Colleen back in the box he had built under the waterbed, but Janice said she would work from home to watch over Colleen instead. During this time, Colleen was allowed much more freedom. Still, the threat of the company loomed over her, so she stayed compliant and didn't attempt to escape. Colleen was permitted to work for Janice's employer assembling electronics at home, but the paychecks were all handed over to Cameron. She was also required to help Cameron dig a large hole in the yard of the property. The hole was lined with concrete blocks and took two years to build. Cameron had big plans for the hole that he hadn't told Janice. It was to be the dungeon, and he would build a shed over it to house more slaves. He had established his power over Janice and now had plans to abduct four more slaves. By 1980, hoping Cameron may treat her better, Colleen told him she loved him and wrote him love letters. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings. From haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9pm Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. I seem to be falling deeper and deeper in love with you each passing day. Sometimes I feel that being your slave has made me more of a woman, but there are other times when I feel it has made me less of a woman. You know how to make me feel good about myself, and I love you so much for it. My love for you is growing with every changing day. You fill my life with happiness and love, and I pray that happiness and love will never end. Colleen also asked Cameron several times to allow her contact with her family, just to let them know she was okay. Writing the love letters to him may have actually paid off. After almost four years of confinement, Cameron felt confident in his control over her. He knew she was terrified of the company and would do what she was told. He granted her a phone call, but made sure she knew that the company was listening and that she and her family would be tortured or killed if she said the wrong thing. By this time, her family had almost completely lost hope of finding her alive. When she called, her youngest sister Bonnie answered the phone. Colleen didn't give her any details, just let her know that she was alive and well. Then she said her goodbyes. The family didn't contact police. They were happy she was alive, but they were still left with many unanswered questions. They assumed she had become a member of a cult, which was common in California at that time. It appeared that Hooker might have actually enjoyed letting her talk to her family and giving her bits of freedom. Because she wouldn't run, it proved that he had the ultimate control over her. By February 1981, he told her that he would take her to visit her family the following month. He told her he had put up a $30,000 deposit with a company to cover extra costs of watching her and her family during the visit. Before the trip, however, Colleen would need to prove her obedience. He handed her a gun and told her to put it in her mouth and pull the trigger. She did as she was told. Just like he promised, Hooker took Colleen to Riverside, but on the drive south they stopped at the company headquarters. Hooker told Colleen that the company required her to pass a lie detector test before she could visit her family. This made her extremely nervous. They arrived at a building in Sacramento and Cameron went inside, leaving Colleen in the car. When he came back to the car, He told her that he had talked them into waiving the test requirement, and they continued on their way. Colleen got to visit with her family, and Hooker posed as her boyfriend. He told the family that he had a computer seminar to go to in San Diego, and he would be back later to pick her up. Now that she was finally alone with her family, she wanted to let her family know the whole truth, but she worried for her safety and the safety of her family. The company was always watching. Colleen stayed overnight with her family, and Cameron picked her up the next day. When Cameron and Colleen returned to Red Bluff, Janice wasn't home, so he raped her and put her in the box underneath the waterbed. Cameron made Janice read the Bible to him, especially certain passages that mentioned wives and slaves and how they were required to be submissive. Janice had a deep fear of hell and believed that if she didn't obey her husband, she would be damned to the eternal torture of hell. Near the end of 1983, Cameron put Colleen in the hole she had dug in the backyard. She was there day and night and was not to come out despite the heavy rains, making the hole into several inches of mud. She was there for about a week until Cameron suspected that a neighbor kid might have wandered into the backyard and saw her in the hole. He brought her back inside and put her back in the box under the bed. Cameron was getting much more trusting of his power over Colleen, and he allowed her increasingly more freedom. By January 1984, he let Colleen out of the box at night and allowed her to sleep in the back bedroom. He allowed her to run in the neighborhood for exercise and sometimes ride a bicycle. By May, she began working as a maid at a local hotel in Red Bluff, but Cameron kept all the money she earned. All the while, she knew that the company was still watching every move she made. July 1984 marked yet another change. Cameron became much more demanding of both women. He decided he wanted to have sex with Janice while fondling Colleen and vice versa. He also announced he would have sex with both of them on alternating nights. Neither of the women liked this idea but felt they had to obey. Janice had been attending church regularly now and would sometimes bring Colleen with her. In 1984, when Cameron told Janice of his plan to abduct four more slaves, this deeply upset her. She was already very upset that he was regularly having sex with Colleen and didn't like the idea of sharing him even more. On August 9th, Janice dropped Colleen at work and then went to church to speak with her pastor. She told the pastor the horrid story, and the pastor advised them both to leave him. Janice went back to the hotel and told Colleen for the first time there was no such thing as the company. It was all a lie. Colleen was extremely upset. She had believed the threat so wholeheartedly. The following day, Janice and Colleen took the two children to Janice's parents' house. Colleen called her father and arranged for him to wire money for bus fare home. Before she left, she called Cameron Hooker and told him she knew there was no company and he had no power over her. He cried on the phone. After only a week, Janice moved back in with Cameron. She took him to church with her and encouraged him to attend counseling with her. The two of them destroyed many of the bondage items over the next month, but Janice hid some items. Janice suffered debilitating anxiety attacks and was unable to eat or sleep, and on September 28th she left once again and moved back in with her parents. The months after Colleen left, she continued to communicate with both Janice and Cameron on the telephone and through letters. Janice begged her not to go to the police, that she was trying to get help for Cameron. She initially agreed, but Colleen's family pressured her to contact the authorities. Colleen was initially grateful just to have her freedom back. Janice was still very afraid of Cameron and worried that he would hurt her or the children, and per her pastor's advice, contacted the police. When a woman comes into a police station and says that she and her husband had kidnapped a young woman, kept her as a slave, and tortured her for seven years, it's a little hard to believe. Initially, police didn't know what to think and doubted her story. After traveling down to Riverside and speaking to Colleen, they believed her story and police arrested Cameron Hooker for kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon, three counts of imprisonment, seven counts of forcible rape, two counts of abduction for illicit relations, and single counts of forcible sodomy, forcible oral copulation, and penetration with a foreign object. He brazenly pled not guilty to all charges. At trial... The prosecution produced over 100 pieces of evidence, including the head box, photos that Cameron had taken of Colleen on the rack and in bondage, a copy of the slavery contract, and they rebuilt the entire waterbed pedestal and the stretcher inside the courtroom for the jury to see. The prosecution even invited the jury members to lie inside the box to see what it was like, and some accepted Hooker admitted that he kidnapped Colleen, but claims that in the later years she was free to go anytime she liked and had plenty of opportunities to leave. The defense also presented the love letters that Colleen had written to Hooker and a photo of her at her family's house smiling with her arms around him. He claimed all of their sex was consensual. Both the prosecution and the defense brought in psychologists. The prosecution's psychologist believed Colleen was coerced by the fear of the company and did not have the ability to leave. The defense's psychologist believed the exact opposite. The jury found Hooker guilty of 10 felony counts, guilty of all but one charge. The last charge of rape resulted in a hung jury. Charges of the murder of Marie Spahniky were never brought against Hooker for lack of evidence. The judge sentenced Cameron Hooker to a total of 95 years in prison and a $50,000 fine. In return for her testimony against Cameron, Janice Hooker was not charged and now lives in California under a different name. Colleen Stan has appeared on several television shows and a lifetime movie was made of her story. Seeing her on television, she seems to have endured the ordeal amazingly well. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.